This is Kelly Owens, and you are tuned in to the first episode of Wandering Nerve Radio. Hello to all who kindly tuned in today. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been wanting to put together a podcast for quite a while now, but I hesitated to because our world already has so much noise and I didn't want to just make more noise that everyone has to sort through. I wanted to make sure that whatever I put out there was something that contributed to a conversation, but at the same time isn't limited to any specific one topic. Obviously, those listening today know that part of what I'm going to talk about in this podcast is bioelectronic medicine, but I wanted to go beyond that as well, to cover not only the science that will improve the lives of so many, but also ask the questions of what it means to live well at all and how to make the most of this one life that we get. So I thought about what factors are at play that allows a person to live as fully as they so choose. And that's when I thought about what ended up becoming the logo for this podcast, an adaptation of the Tree of Life, a symbol that shows up in ancient texts of multiple faiths and cultures around the world to illustrate the interconnectedness of the universe. In Gaelic... The Tree of Life is known as Crown Betta. When the Celts settled a new community, an oak tree was planted at the center. They saw the tree as a symbol for strength due to its deep, intricate root system, maintaining the tree's height and weight, wisdom due to its longevity, and on that note, they also admired the tree's endurance for still standing despite the conditions it endures over the course of its long lifespan which sounds like something that we could all learn from. Lastly, it represents the interconnectedness of all living things and how both the seen and unseen are dependent on the other to survive. In my adaptation of this ancient symbol, I am particularly honing in on the tree as a symbol for the mind and body. That is where incorporating the vagus nerve into the root system comes into play the intricate balance of the nervous system and immune system to create and maintain homeostasis, and how, when that balance occurs, that allows for our own continued growth as we navigate the conditions of our lives. And if there is a way to capture the themes that I plan to explore in this podcast, all the above would suffice. You may be thinking to yourself right about now, okay, well, what does that actually mean? What is she going to be talking about and who is she going to be talking to? What does a tree have to do with it? (laughs) And why should I listen? Before I answer those questions, though, I want to talk to you about what inspired the idea to do this and why. And I want to do that by talking a bit about the journey that I've been on for the last six years while advocating for this therapy and use that as a jumping off point to start telling other stories about science and culture and everything in between. But first, let's start here. 
So I have always been drawn to the interconnectedness and interdependence of everything in our universe and our place in it. I am in awe of the puzzle pieces that make up all of our lives and all the things that had to go tragically wrong to lead to the things that became so exquisitely right. And I'm curious about that. How much of our lives are predetermined by the laws of physics and how much can we influence with our own free will? Well, while Brian Greene and Neil deGrasse Tyson duke it out over which absolute is true, I have been wondering for all this time if both are true. And if that's the case, does how we conduct ourselves with the utility of our free will determine which of the many potential predetermined roads that we could take? Because if predetermination is a thing, I would argue that there are at least a few roads outlined ahead of time, and it is our free will that determines which one we wander down. And with that in mind, is it possible that some of those roads that we find aren't actually roads at all? We misread the signs and ended up encountering a runaway truck ramp that we thought was a road, but it was only meant to provide a safeguard to bring us to a controlled stop when our brakes fail, and we were supposed to use it to slow our roll and regain our composure. But instead of doing so, some of us bushwhacked through the woods at the end of the ramp and kept going, at the cost of the homeostasis or harmony that we didn't realize lied ahead if we went back to the road that we had been on. As we keep going through this uncharted territory, instead of finding what it was that we may not have known that we were looking for, we end up instead spending our lives in a state of fight or flight where our free will is fueled by adrenaline rather than our own mindful design. And in other scenarios, we may come to a fork in the road, as Robert Frost portrayed in The Road Not Taken. This is one of my favorite poems, but that is because my interpretation of the poem is influenced by my happiness over the road that I chose to take. But that isn't the spirit that Frost wrote the poem in. See, if the entire poem was written here today and we examined it, it's clear that he was saddened by the road that he chose. As he writes, I shall tell this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But isn't that the story with all of us? Every day we are making choices that alter our outcomes for better or worse. But there's generally one situation or one thing that we could all point to and now in hindsight know that this one decision altered our entire existence. How we read poetry is personal and sometimes what it sparks in us differs from the poet's original intent but that's what poetry is. My husband Sean recently said to me when discussing this very topic that wherever we go, we are surrounded by the choices that we make. So, is our life designed by predetermination, free will, or some kind of mixture of both? 
What a complicated question to even attempt to explore. Not to answer, because I don't think that we will ever know the answer to that particular unknown. But I still think that the question itself is worth thinking through, because it forces us to confront the role that we have played in becoming who we are now and who we can be tomorrow. When I think about my life in this capacity, I'm able to see the many roads that my loved ones travel down, and for some, the runaway truck ramps, as well as the many roads that Sean and I have traveled down that led to me sitting right here today. And I think about all the wonderful and terrible things that had to happen to create my current reality, and how if those events didn't unfold exactly as they did, I wouldn't be me. And I may not have encountered the people and opportunities that have made my existence so much fuller. Or if I did, I may not have recognized them. And maybe I would have just strolled on by and I would have ended up missing it all. As many of you already know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and inflammatory arthritis at 13, and in the 15 years that followed, 22 biologics and DMARDs failed. And they did enough to keep me alive, thank God for that, but they didn't allow me to thrive. Over the course of those 15 years, though, despite my limitations, Sean and I still did a lot of living. You would be surprised what a chronically ill and stubborn dreamer can accomplish with some prendazone and a Percocet or two, even if it meant more suffering, such as when my ankles would blow up so big that my feet turned inward, or when my knees became unbearably swollen and tight to the point that I couldn't stand to put weight on them anymore. However, whatever price I paid in pain that followed, if we could MacGyver a way for me to have some kind of experience as basic as it may have been, we certainly gave it our best shot. And I can say with complete confidence that it was always worth whatever the cost. I wanted so badly to experience life as fully as possible, and I didn't want to be known for my diseases. I wanted to be known for more than that. I didn't even start publicly writing about my patient experience, as it's called, until 2015, first out of necessity and then out of my attempt to cope with how small and quiet my world became after the hospitalization that nearly ended my life, but did end my career. As my world got smaller and smaller after no longer being able to work, I went from having colleagues and friends and 90 students a day to spending my days in bed surrounded by nothing but my own company and the painful realization of my own mortality and the silence of my solitude was deafening. So I poured my heart out onto pages while propped up by pillows and with my pain as dulled as possible by whatever narcotic I was prescribed to bear what it felt like to live in my skin. And that year, I experienced what dying felt like. As I laid in the hospital bed in those months earlier, having lost 40 pounds in a matter of weeks, my entire existence just felt different. My soul felt different. My bones and skin the parts that hold me up and keep me contained, 
That has always felt like my house. But inside my house, my cells and muscles and tissue and organs and nerves, that all felt like a dysfunctional family that drank too much and screamed and slammed doors. But at that moment, it felt slow, still painful, but now also hollow. It felt like how it would have felt if all of a sudden the doors weren't slamming anymore and the screams went silent, but the people were still in that house, knowing that there was no fixing this, and each of them felt that hollow pain of loss and despair. That feeling of being in my soul and looking at my body laying before me, knowing that on the inside that was happening, that they were all giving up, that is what it felt like to meet the very real possibility of my own mortality. And then I stabilized enough to survive, but not to live. What I was doing during that time wasn't really living. It was slowing down to the pace of an existence that was on track for an early demise. And if I was any different than who I am, a Celt from the country and a Jersey girl who sees yields where others see stop signs, <laughs> if not for those things, and having someone I still can't get enough of to live for, I may have sat down and waited for that old foe to arrive. Right about when we were at rock bottom in the beginning of 2017, Setpoint Medical kicked off a clinical trial evaluating the use of vagus nerve stimulation in inflammatory diseases. The only kicker was that it was happening in Europe. So Sean and I sold everything that wasn't nailed to the floor and crowdfunded enough from our incredible community of friends and family to get us to Amsterdam for six months for me to participate. This was our last hope of a healthy life for me, and we went all in. And what do you know? It worked. Toward the end of the clinical trial, while taking the train to one of my follow-up appointments, I looked out the window, and our years up until that point flashed before me. Two kids from the Appalachian Mountains of northwest New Jersey who flipped the bird to society's normal rules of engagement and went on to see the world and find out what else was out there and did everything we could to outrun the diseases that rattled me and followed us wherever we went. But now, there we were in a foreign country with a foreign language in cobblestone streets and hundreds of bikes passing by pedestrians and trams and cars and trains and buses going in every which direction. But somehow none of these things ever collided. And I thought back to those days before my device was implanted, when Sean would push my wheelchair along those cobblestone streets and how I felt every bump and movement at an excruciating cellular level. And then I felt the positive effects of vagus nerve stimulation take over my body, and the inflammation receded, and I skipped along those streets and hurried through the multifaceted traffic of people and wheels and tracks. And I was thrilled but terrified because I knew how to navigate the world in a body that didn't work. And the overwhelming joy of having one that now did was exhilarating and completely terrifying. And my body suddenly became the foreign city that I had to learn the language maps and customs of 
And I had waited my whole life to feel this wonderfully unfamiliar and terrifyingly free. It is only now, looking back from here, all these years later, that I can see how much life I had missed before. I wouldn't dream of going back to rewrite history, though. The depth of my curiosity and my hunger for living is dependent on having lived those harder days and years. They've made the ones that I have now so extraordinarily sweet, and changing even one of the puzzle pieces would dismantle the reality that I am so overjoyed to be living in today. I wouldn't be sitting here in this gorgeous studio that Sean renovated for me from dirt floors and tree log framing of what was once a barn and then became a workshop and is now my own kind of workshop, no longer used to forge horseshoes, but maybe someday I may take that up, but instead to create whatever art I can squeeze out of my soul at the moment writing and recording this podcast episode and waiting for Sean's return home from work, when I'll see his truck come up the driveway, back up to his workshop, and he'll unload the tools needed for the day and repack the truck with the tools he'll need tomorrow. And then I'll watch as he walks up the sidewalk and smiles at me through my studio's big picture window. And then he'll open the door and I'll spin my chair around and smile at him and I will watch the stress of his day melt away from his beautiful face, speckled with sawdust and sweat, bending the corners of his cheeks with his deep smile lines that go on for days, followed by a talk about what's for dinner. Doesn't every couple have that conversation every day? <laughs> Later, we'll sit by the fire while listening to Bruce Springsteen or Chris Stapleton, and we'll talk about our day in the house that we have dreamed of since we were those kids first falling in love. So when I look back on what I miss, it is more with the recognition and awe of what I survived and the life that we have today. I never want to miss a meteor shower in exchange for a good night's sleep, nor do I want to miss those moments amidst the chaos of existence when I can doze in Sean's arms on the couch and wake to gaze out of our living room window to see our moss-covered maple keeping vigil over the property that it has loved for centuries. And if something piques my curiosity for long enough that it sets my belly and my brain both on fire, I want to take that as a sign that whether I find any answers or not, that something is worth more of my time. That is what my heart ached for pre-vagus nerve stimulation, to be limitless and to make the one life I get overflow with an abundance of experience and ability. But to get to this point today isn't just about the road that I chose or the roads of my loved ones. Our lives are also influenced by the roads that others wander down. In particular, the research that has paved the way to treating disease with electricity, which starts with a road chosen by a young neurosurgeon in the 1980s by the name of Kevin Tracy. Dr. Tracy's research over the last 35 years has redefined how inflammatory diseases are viewed and treated, 
First, by identifying TNF, a protein generated in the body to prompt inflammation, as both a cause and accelerant of disease, which led to participating in the development of the antidote monoclonal anti-TNF. This work led to two more major discoveries. First, classifying the phenomenon of the body reacting and then overreacting to insult and injury in what is known as the inflammatory reflex, and discovering that the vagus nerve is vital to its mechanism. In the now 25 years since, Dr. Tracy and his lab have led the charge in identifying the molecular mechanisms at work in this evolutionary reflex that allows for the communication of the nervous system and immune system. When we got home from Amsterdam, I reached out to Dr. Tracy via email to thank him for saving my life and let him know that I was up for the challenge of helping to get this out there. I couldn't bear the idea of living with myself without doing everything I could to help get this so that other patients could experience life on the other side of disease as I was doing. And I knew that a first-hand account could really help with that. And I also knew how much longer it would take without a patient's voice yelling this from the rooftops over and over and over again, much to the chagrin of those who profit off of the status quo's continued existence. You see, patients with inflammatory diseases are wildly profitable, and I knew that the powers that be would stagnate and suppress this for as long as they could, and it felt like a duty and a responsibility to see this through. So, for the last six years, that's what we've been up to. We've traveled to Washington to speak with policymakers and regulators about this field and provided context of this therapy's great necessity by highlighting the human potential currently stifled by inflammation, as well as the immense socioeconomic impact of disease on both individual wealth and national GDP, and highlighted the bureaucratic and regulatory hurdles that stagnate its translation. I've engaged with both national and grassroots patient foundations and have developed presentations and lectures for various audiences and stakeholders, and have created educational content to ensure that discoveries in this field are accessible to a wide-ranging audience regardless of background or education level. At the same time, though, Behind the scenes, while all of this was occurring, I was, and still am, in the process of learning how to simply be and to leave the survival mode that I had spent 15 years in. I first had to grapple with the PTSD of what I had physically endured during that time, but never had the energy or wherewithal to deal with before. And at that point, those Newtonian laws came up. A body in motion remains in motion, and a body at rest stays at rest. But now my internal body was no longer in the motion of trying to kill me, thankfully. It was now operating as it should. And what I was left with, though, was a mind that couldn't rest because it didn't know how to. The dragon had been slayed, but even all these years later, I'm still figuring out who I am and what I am capable of when I am not being chased by a dragon. 
When your world is painted by chronic pain and doctor's appointments and labs and fusions, hospitalizations, battling insurance companies, and just trying to keep your head above water in the process, it is undeniably going to have an impact on how you meet the world and how well you are able to meet yourself. In the era we find ourselves in, what I'm about to say isn't popular, but it is undeniably true. Having all of our faculties in proper working order allows for the greatest breadth of the human experience. And as someone who was disabled for such a long time and during such important developmental years, I can say that coming to this realization can feel like a loss for the time that was missed. But what I've learned, though, is that it's okay to grieve for that loss while also overflowing with joy for now getting to experience the world in a completely new way. Meanwhile, while on my mission to get bioelectronic medicine therapies out to patients, I saw the machine of the profitable world of advocacy firsthand and how that influenced the mindset of what it means to be a patient. At the same time, this has been colliding with the world of identity politics, which has transformed how we interpret the meaning of the word identity. Nowadays, it is less about knowing yourself as an individual and more about fitting into a collective identity group. And while I previously thought that FDA approval and physician adoption would be the biggest hurdles to get this therapy out to patients, I soon began to understand that an equal heavyweight contender was the culture of identity in America today. Just like every other facet of life, 85% of people want peace and prosperity, but the 15% most extreme set the stage for all, whether we like it or not. We saw that with the pandemic, presidential elections, protests, and everything in between, and it is all fueled by what's happening online. Whether you are on Twitter or not, the conversations happening there are impacting your life. I am very sorry to say. And identity politics has created an opportunity for people to divide themselves into tribes who are each fighting their own boogeyman. And the most popular tribes to be a part of are the ones where it's now considered heroic to be a victim because of the confines of that particular identity. And now the hero's journey is not about overcoming adversity, but instead being defined by the limitations and hardships of that adversity and remaining right exactly where you are. Unsurprisingly, this made room for the 15% of extremely online patients to become influencers and create a new identity category, the identity of disease. The boogeyman the abled people and abled systems that seek to oppress disabled people. This is not representative of the majority of patients, but these are the patients who have an outsized influence on healthcare policy and treatment paradigms. And I have learned that in this particular community, 
Calling for novel therapies like vagus nerve stimulation is considered ableism. So as part of my effort to get vagus nerve stimulation out to more patients, my work now includes debunking this idea that disease is a fixed characteristic like race or sex, because it most certainly is not. At the moment, however, identity politics rules the discourse of the day, and it leaves those who abide by its laws a level of certitude that the great poets and philosophers of yesteryear would have probably had a laugh over because it certainly must be satire. No one is that sure of themselves, right? <laughs> Isn't that why we have poetry and art and philosophy at all? What I've learned, though, is that those who spend much time, thought, or energy delving into the self-imposed categorization of identity politics haven't spent much time trying to meet themselves. Or if they have, they found the discomfort of that experience so unbearable that it became easier to accept an identity label like a name tag rather than bushwhack through the wild vines within. Emily Dickinson explained the latter so eloquently. I am out here with lanterns looking for myself. But to do so is hard, and our culture doesn't like hard. We like predictable. If we can pigeonhole ourselves and each other into labels that make ourselves and others more predictable and therefore more palatable, we have to do none of the work to intimately know each other or ourselves. However, the inescapable truth is that each of us has layers. We contain multitudes and contradictions, and we don't fit neatly into compartments, nor do the contents of the universe. Yet we spend our time obsessively categorizing the uncategorizable, oversimplifying the complicated to try to make our days less so. We divorce thought from outcome and look to only external factors to blame for the circumstances we find ourselves in, which undoubtedly matter, but we have forgotten that as much as those external factors impact who and where and what we are, so do we. And how we react and respond determines whether we dance with our demons or find ourselves crushed to death by their weight. So, what the hell is this podcast about? <laughs> you could say that we wandered around a pretty vast landscape there, huh? Exactly. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien wrote, Not all who wander are lost. The word vagus is Latin for wandering, and the vagus nerve is known as the wandering nerve because it wanders throughout the body, which works out perfectly because I'm a bit of a wanderer myself. This podcast is indeed going to wander to a lot of subjects because the vagus nerve isn't even just one nerve. It's about 80,000 wires and a cable, all transmitting different information and responsible for different outcomes that are seemingly disconnected, heart rate, digestion, glucose, inflammation, and everything in between. 
And just like the medical dogma of the day has tried to compartmentalize the body into different organ systems and functions, like a car broken down for parts, so has society tried to do the same with the self and all the complexities of existence. My goal with this podcast is to cover these three areas. Number one, I am interested in creating opportunities for the public to learn about novel therapies that will alter the course of human existence and allow for us to live as fully as possible. While favoring bioelectronic medicine, my personal favorite, obviously, the podcast will also include other new frontiers of medical science as to also explore those other promising therapies and emerging fields. Through thoughtful and conversational interviews with pioneers, I will ask questions framed around who, what, when, where, and why to make the science accessible and engaging to a diverse audience. Two, beyond science, I will also interview individuals who inspire me and will explore topics such as rewriting personal narratives, tipping points, overturning the status quo, or dancing with adversity. I am intrigued by those who march to the beat of their own drum, and I think we all benefit when we try to learn from unique perspectives. And three, I will also occasionally do monologues like this one. Sometimes I'll talk about the art and ideas that, in my opinion, make life that much more worth living. And other times, I will share my opinions about more controversial issues, including my take on what I refer to as the Wild West of bioelectronic medicine that we are in now, and other hot topics that may arise. With Wandering Nerve Radio, I hope to implore you to find out what life looks like on the other side of the status quo. Each episode will serve as a reminder that humanity is only limited by the acceptance of the notion that we have limitations. After all, imagine where we'd be in the world today if everyone in history allowed the peanut gallery to dictate progress. My life has been an exploration of trying to answer the following questions. What do we have to do to have the privilege of living a long, healthy life? How does trauma impact our physical selves? How do we navigate adversity instead of succumbing to it? And how do the puzzle pieces, the good and the terrible, all somehow perfectly fit together to lead us to the lives we are capable of living? In his memoir, Bruce Springsteen said, in analysis, you work to turn the ghosts that haunt you into ancestors who accompany you. I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to do that, and I hope that this podcast helps you to do that as well. This is Kelly Owens, and you have been listening to the first episode of Wandering Nerve Radio.